for January 14th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 237. Jack Bauer got pissy and filled out a lot of forms. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, It is 1,830 hours here in uh, Los Angeles, California. I'm Matt Rather, uh, here to talk about Zero Dark Thirty uh, and other topics with the panel. But before we do... Uh, January the 26th, 2013 is a very special date because something very special is happening on that date, uh, which is very special. So uh, here to talk about it, Mark Lee. All right. Uh, What that special thing is, is not overthinking it turning five years old. We turned five years old on January 22nd, 2008, but on Saturday, January 26th, 2013, uh, we turn five on January 22nd, 2013. On Saturday, January 26, 2013, we're going to have an awesome overthinking it fifth birthday party. Um, it's going to be like your fifth birthday party. We're going to go to McDonald's and then we're going to have cake and we're going to play in the ball pit. No, it's not going to be like that. We're going to go to a bar, the 11th Street Bar in the East Village of New York City. We're going to start at nine o'clock and we're going to go until we fall over, until the cops come, whichever comes first. So check out the website. The information is there. It's also on our Facebook page. Please RSVP on our Facebook page so we determine uh, how much cake to get and how big of a ball pit we should have. Right. I hope to see you there if you're in the New York City area. (laughs) If if we're going to need more than one bouncy house in order to accommodate uh, all the partiers. Sadly, it is 21 plus, I think, right? Uh, That is correct. Yes. So just want to make that clear. So if you're in the 18 to party, 21 to drink department, maybe you can set up some sort of satellite thing. Um, <laughs> we'll be permitted in our party, sadly. Um, we still love you, though. Not well, that much, though. Yeah, you, get could, you could just get, keep it going on the sidewalk right outside the bar or something. You know <laughs> what I mean? And like, uh, you know, I don't know, demand your right as an American to enter a place of business. Uh, yes, January 26th. 9 p.m. in New York, the uh, celebration of overthinking its fifth anniversary. And uh, we're going to, um, it's going to feature uh, New York based overthinkers and uh, some overthinkers from out of town, uh, including one Peter Fenzel. That's a me. Including, uh, <laughs> including John Parrish, who I know has bought his ticket already. What up? What up? What up? And then including uh, also Josh McNeil coming up from Philadelphia. I uh, confirmed with him yesterday. All right. And yours truly, Matt Rather, bought a plane ticket from Los Angeles to New York for no other reason than to come to this party and hang out with fellow Overthinking It writers and hang out with Overthinking It readers. Uh, I'm He's be- leaving the bleeding edge, ladies and gentlemen. Le- leaving the bleeding edge. Absolutely. Um, coming, yeah, coming to the hinterlands, the cultural hinterlands of America, uh, New York City's <laughs> East Village. And uh, yeah, gonna, gonna party with you until they tell us to go home so or until my plane flight leaves whichever comes first i have a you know i have a built-in uh, sort of expiration date so uh we would love to see you uh on january 26th in new york uh for the party panel your question this week in honor of zero dark 30 pitch us a movie uh whose title is a time of the day drink because peter fenzel is not first in the alphabet it's ben adams Hey, how you doing? 
Uh, I'm doing okay. So, um, you know, being actually in the military, I guess you use 24 hour time a lot or you, you know, you hear it used a lot. Right. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. All the time. Well, 100% of the, <laughs> yeah. 100% of the pretty time. much. Uh, yeah. So it probably doesn't sound, uh, as you know, I don't know, exotic to, uh, to you as it does to a, to a civilian audience member of, of zero dark 30. Right. Yeah, Zero Dark Thirty is just it, it is used pretty frequently in the military to refer just to a generic time early in the morning. Right. Because it's anything zero six thirty, zero five thirty, zero four thirty. It's all so zero dark thirty. It's still dark out. So. Half past half past sunrise or something, or an hour before sunrise or something. Right or uh, whatever. Right. Well, cool. What's your movie? Uh, so 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 my movie is as another obscure piece of military uh, trivia. Not trivia, but uh, jargon, I guess, that I could bring to, to the public here. And because I, I need to rehabilitate my community, I am a, uh, a surface warfare officer uh, portrayed at last in Hollywood in the movie Battleship. Which <laughs> yes. not, Fine film. Not really, did not really represent us as well as, you know, say the, the aviators got in Top Gun or the Submariners got in Crimson Tide. Uh, so my movie is called The Rev Watch. That's REV watch, which is the uh, from 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. in the morning, uh, and it, I, don't, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be a movie about surface ships that's not battleship. Excellent, and and about something ha- and right like it encounters you know some sort of uh, uh, some sort of obstacle or you know enemy thing right uh, during like. Aliens, perhaps? No, not aliens. (laughs) What if they have radar jamming and you need to get the USS Missouri? No, we'll change it. You have to get the, you have to raise the Bismarck in order to fight off the, uh, fight off the aliens. Um, it'll be called Dreadnought and it will be anything like Battleship, not even a little bit. (laughs) Not even one bit. Yeah. (laughs) Those are the dulcet tones of Pete Fenzel. Pete, uh, what is your movie? My movie is called Sandman 100. And it refers to the military time at which uh, Sandman Sims would prepare for shows at Showtime at the Apollo, uh, which, of course, aired for a very long time after Saturday Night Live. Uh, And it's about, I think, just sort of – I guess they probably don't film – Showtime at the Apollo Live, the way that they film Saturday Night Live live. I mean, they don't do it anymore in general, right? They don't do that show as far as I know. Um, but they did for a long time. And so I would like to see like what Sandman Sims is doing in his actual life. He's the clown who has the cane, who pulls off the terrible axe, works with Kiki Shepard, and an, an array of hosts, including uh, Steve Harvey and Monique, uh, and other, other assorted uh, excellent excellent human beings for that wonderful show that ran for such a long time. Um, but yeah, I want to see like what is it like for him to prepare mentally for seeing himself come out and shame people like are there people who are going to try to prevent the show from being aired right because they're going to get shamed for doing terrible tap dancing and then they they're threatening sandman and he has to kind of you know be running down the street while on his communicator with kiki shepherd you know trying to coordinate some sort of counter-strike uh i really want to know what the seedy underbelly of showtime at the apollo is uh, and how it is is a military operation right or does he have so. i mean does he have just a sort of like existential crisis looking in the mirror you know and and like uh as the grains as the grains of sandman <laughs> in the hourglass Right, like right, so are right. the so are the days of our life. Or like, you know, who am I? What if I want to praise somebody? Can I, you know, can I do that? Um, right, quintessential Showtime at the Apollo crisis. Right, <laughs> like it's what do you what? Yeah, what? Who is John Proctor? Nobody knows. Are you doing that monologue from the Crucible here? No one in the audience gets it. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Lee. 
Mine's going to be um, off-peak hour. That, of course, referring to <laughs> the critical cutover for commuter rails um, that are not during the, the peak rush hour times, um, where, you know, for most people, it's just uh, a way to take advantage of cheaper uh, tickets to get in and out of the city and uh, not have to pay full fare. Uh, but for a particular intelligence operative, uh, it's uh, the, the way to uh, to access certain train stations at the right periods of time so that he can meet informants and assassinate uh, terrorists. It's really exciting stuff, I tell you what. Also, he's late uh, getting home to his wife, and he has uh, trouble at home because of I his thought uh, you were gonna go. I thought you were going to go off-peak hour on your cell phone, that you're running away from the secret agent, but you got to wait until... Your cell phone bill rolls into off-peak hours so you can afford the minutes. That's, it's that's just, even better. It's just out of control. <laughs> I, I thought it was about somebody who goes to the gym at 8.30 and it's like trying to get a lower-grade membership just to pay less because it's off-peak. Why can't these all be the same movie? <laughs> let's, let's, let's dream big, guys. I'm pretty sure cell phones are against the rules at the gym. <laughs> maybe, there's a cell phone area. Maybe it all takes place inside the cell phone area of like a Philadelphia sports club. It's, it's, just like it's under like the Valentine's. It's one of the big multi-celebrity, like multi-story movies, like Valentine's Day, where it's just a bunch of different people trying to get save money by going off peak hours on various things of life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, what's so the- so what, what one person's playing like late night or like midday laser tag, like at three in the afternoon. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Was Valentine's Day the real one, or or was Valentine's Day the parody on Thirty Rock? I keep forgetting which one. No, 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 was no, no, no. Valentine's Day was a real movie. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I think, was the 30 Rock parody. Okay. No, the, uh, Le- I thought Leap Day was the 30 Rock parody. Also that. <laughs> they made a Valentine's Day and they made a New Year's Eve, right? Or they made a, uh, is that what they did? Yeah, or? New Year's yeah. Eve, yeah, is the one that I I, I mean, the real for. one is Love Actually, obviously, which is Christmas. Um Sure. Right, like love actually is the real one, but yeah, which is actually. which is about the love of of God for the world, uh, for He so loved the world that He sent us His uh, only begotten Son to redeem us from our sins. Right, that's uh, that's the love that's being referenced in the title of Love Actually. I mean, there are there are there are statements in popular culture that are less theologically apt than Love Actually is all around. <laughs> <laughs> um all right mine uh mine is an action movie and it's a concept that that has sort of flavors of toy story or of the kind of movie where you're you're shown the the kind of the life of uh of inanimate objects uh you know once all the people leave um it's called close of business and it's about how a bunch of of office supplies come to life and like solve crimes uh, after you know the bank closes, after your bank branch closes, the the like the staplers and the drawers full of rubber bands and binder clips and things like this go on secret missions. Oh, is there a scene for the like the the for, forlorn, forgotten typewriter to come in and save the day? With esoteric knowledge, yeah, it's it's like it's kind of like the Expendables, right? It's a you know where the <laughs> it's sort of they're old but they're still good, you know. They still have that sort of brute force. Um, that they, they have that uh, that brute force. And speaking of brute force, of deadly force applied with great uh, great precision, Zero Dark Thirty. <laughs> I see what you correct. did there. Yeah, so yeah, Zero Dark Thirty. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we can look at this movie. I know, Ben, you also saw it, right? Yes. So we have, and Matt and Mark, you have not seen it, right? So we will play the part of the Socratic interlocutors and, and, uh, you know, um, ask uh, questions. 
Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, do you have a question you want to start out with so that we can wind up and take this on? Uh, what is the nature of right action? <laughs> can we just have the Crito or the Mino? I forget which one that was. Republic as a podcast? Well, I mean, that's a good question. What is the nature of right, right action? Uh, I mean, I guess, is it any action that get, brings you one step closer to the killing of Osama bin Laden? In which case, anything that passes time would be that, right? Because the death of Osama bin Laden has to happen at some point in the future. And thus, anything that takes place can bring you closer to the death of Osama bin Laden. And at this point, it would have to be in reverse. You so like, not, not causing the Earth's rotation to stop. Uh, right. <laughs> anything sort of that is, is helping uh, uh, kill Osama bin Laden. Well, excellent. I mean, Guys, if I'm we're gonna, not going to uh, stop, it would probably kill Osama bin Laden due to heat or cold. Um, or so I don't just, think just stop in, Right, due to just inertia, right? It would kill all of us because were the Earth actually to stop, we would fly off its surface uh, because we're traveling at, you know, tens of thousands of miles. Right. Of, Can we not talk about the movie? Can we just come up with more outlandish ways to kill Osama bin Laden? <laughs> I, well, guys, I mean, if I can do anything and it helps, uh, kill the enemies of America because they're all going to die anyway. You enjoy the podcast. I'm going to go have a bacon cheeseburger uh, as a patriot. America. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess the, the big elephant in the room is the torture question. Uh, is the Because you know that there was the member of the Academy as an actor, I believe, who's also a, an activist, who came out and said that he was not going to vote for Zero Dark Thirty for anything because he believed that it promoted torture, uh, most, of, most notably promoted torture as effective, uh, which he says is not backed up by uh, experience, that the information his, that was... His own experience what? torturing people? His own experience. I mean, you know, I think he was... I'm trying, I want to like, have handy like the movies he was in so I can tell you what kind of torture uh, he went through. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'll have to look that up, actually, I guess. What, what is the guy's name? The guy's name is uh, David Clennon. So David Clennon uh, was in... Uh, it would be so much easier if it were Sean Penn, wouldn't it? Who, yeah. like, comes out against this kind of thing, because then, then you can say something along the lines of, I don't know, Sean, you made us all sit through I Am Sam. Yeah, I mean, he was in the band, and the band played on in The Thing, like the original The Thing, so he's been in some good stuff. Um, I guess he's also been in... He was in Grey's Anatomy for an episode. <laughs> I don't know. That's not so bad. He was in Numbers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this nice. is the guy. It's like a hitter. But yeah, but no, he said he wasn't going to vote for, for anything because he said that it portrays information necessary for the capture of Osama bin Laden as having been achieved by tortured and enta- enchanced interrogation in a way that does not necessarily correspond to reality. Uh, and, and like then McCain and a bunch of the senators were writing to Sony and asking them to issue a statement to publicly state that the events in the movie aren't true, uh, which Sony did, although they qualified it, uh, I believe, uh, is saying something to the effect of things like this did happen, but they didn't necessarily happen in like, the order and the way that we portray. There is a certain amount of license that's taken. Uh, I know that Catherine Bigelow has defended it, I, I believe, um, as, as, as having a lot of things that are accurate in it and, of course, having some sort of license in it. But um, I don't know. There's a big controversy around whether Zero Dark Thirty endorses torture promotes torture, gives torture more credit than it should in the capture of Osama bin Laden. Uh, I feel like we should address it because it's kind of the main thing buzzing around this. Well, right. And, but can I ask, a, I mean, can I ask a question just to put it in perspective as we go? Yeah. Is it, how central is that to the, the kind of the narrative or to the artistic project of the movie? Because it seems like um, is all, all the critical things I, I've read say that it's a really good movie, right? And that like, like as a film, it's, it's extremely successful. Um, 
you know, if you just sort of bracket out the the political questions, um, how I mean, how central is the is that stuff, the torture, the enhanced interrogation or the whatever euphemism of the week uh, we're using to the I mean, to what you think of as like the kind of the, the soul or the DNA of the movie? It's the first I'll, act. Yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I'll, yeah, I'll, and I'll unpack kind of what you said there, because you said how central is it to the narrative and how central is it to the art? And that's kind of two questions because it's sure. not very central to the narrative at all. Right. You could cut out the first act of the movie, just the whole torture stuff, because there's really only one piece of information that is important, that it's this thread at the beginning of the thread. But it's this really extremely long thread. And even then, it's kind of questionable. And that, that's the reason I think there's been so much controversy is because you can definitely read it either way. But it's very questionable in the movie whether or not the torture even helped them get this information. Like, they tortured the guy who gave it to them, but he didn't give it under torture. It's after they've tortured him, and then they start being nice to him and trick him with some information that he gives up the information. But from an artistic standpoint, it's extremely important because it sets the tone, I think, for the rest of the whole movie. Um, I, I personally come down... I think it's very hard to watch this movie and come out of it and think it's a pro-torture movie. Maybe that was just the way I interpreted it, because the torture scenes are ugly. Like, mm-hmm. you watch those, and you're not happy that those are Americans that are doing that to people. I mean, can we contrast it with the obvious other, uh, you know, torture thing in the pop culture uh, arena in, in the subject, which is 24, right? I mean, it's often said that people come out of watching 24, anyone from, you know, average Joe to uh, representatives and senators in Congress coming out and saying, like, hey, you know, we need people, uh, you know, Americans to be able to do these sort of enhanced interrogations to get information to save the day to stop the bomb and that sort of thing. We don't have time for normal interrogation. Uh, I mean, it... it it's it's there's two answers to that question i I think ben did a a really good job of of separating them the first answer is it's a lot less effective because in 24 he tortures the guy for clearly less than a day right because that's that would be the entire season if he tortured the guy for an entire day whereas in in zero dark 30 they torture the guy for weeks right um and and then get like maybe a piece of information out of it after the fact uh whereas in 24 he tortures him for like 25 minutes and gets a bunch of really critical information so in that sense it gives torture less credibility but in the secondary sense where you kind of wonder what the emotional effect is of on people of watching these scenes and whether people kind of walk out of it like sort of charged up and angry and and kind of like feeling like this is normal right like um it's sort of like if people if it sort of goes around to the video game sort of argument around violence, right? Which is like, do violent video games make people more violent? Not because they necessarily think that that what the video game players do is admirable, but because they're in that place and they're kind of experiencing it and they get desensitized to it. Um, And there's something about it that kind of gets into their psyche. In that sense, like Zero Dark Thirty is probably more about getting torture kind of rooted in your brain than 24 is because the torture scenes are so much more brutal. Right, like, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not quite as ready to absolve the movie as Ben is, but I mean, I agree with with his general assessment. But I really feel like this, the sort of lascivious way that the torture is drawn out. Like, I didn't, I didn't feel as much of a grimace at it. I felt like it was kind of, it was more kind of exploitative and and um, kind of like uh, tantalizing um, in the way that it was being put forth uh, than like necessarily averted. Maybe that's my own psyche being like, this is weird that this is so lurid. Right, that this and this thing is happening. Um, well, but yeah. let me let me ask this uh, because I have not seen the movie. My uh, 
guess at the justification and the positioning of the use of torture in this movie. And the story that they're trying to tell is that it, the movie is trying to use this as an example as a way of saying that, hey, our country has done a lot of things which w- should make you uncomfortable um, and, and queasy um, in, in order to achieve this national security objective. We're not saying it's right. We're not saying it's wrong. What we're saying is that what? We should just be aware of it and, and, I mean, and have not, a conversation that, about it. And, that's not what the movie... I mean, know, Ben, you, you go ahead. You go ahead. I think, I think that is definitely part of the... I think... And I think Catherine Bigelow said this, is that Chile's claims that they're trying to make it relatively neutral. Um, mm-hmm. I think the reason it's drawn so much criticism is because of the... what Immediately before the torture, literally over the title card, is about 30 seconds of a 911 call from 9-11. Um, mm-hmm. And it really jars you into the moment. And then the next thing you see is the dude getting tortured in a Connex box. Mm-hmm. And so I think some... I think it people are seeing that as one is the logical outcome of the other. Yeah. Well, I mean, forgive me if I'm oversimplifying things here, but if we're saying, if we're debating here, if nine 11 caused the United States to do more torture, I mean, that's a pretty obvious uh, answer to that, right? Which is yes. No, that, not necessarily. Actually, not necessarily. There's not a causal relationship there. I mean, the, the people who advocate for... It's not like Dick Cheney decided he was going to advocate for torture after 9-11. Right? Like, it's not like any of that stuff was... It, it didn't change all his mentality because of it. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into this art. I don't want to get too much deep politically into it. But it's... I mean, it's, it's... The stuff is happening, you know... The stuff with the Iraq War. I mean, the Iraq War does come up a couple times in the movie where people point out that a lot of the things that have been said and been said to have been true uh, by people involved with the CIA and national intelligence have been spurious and have been for other reasons or have been, you know, not so great. So I don't think – I'm not willing to accept it's a foregone conclusion that 9-11 made people torture more. I think it provided political ammunition to people who wanted to torture more anyway, right, um, and that these are people who are already okay with it. Right, like, but uh, I don't know. That's a difficult question. I, 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 to ask. I, was, I was getting at something much more simpler, which is that saying that, like, you know, before nine eleven, there was a certain you know threat environment, national security mood, um, and it's the sense of danger. And afterwards, uh, that sense of danger increased palpably. And you know, when you've got you know a, a bigger thing out there, you're, you're trying to get after. That's just going to cause more uh, general types of let's call it national security intelligence gathering activity. And along with that, is going to increase the the, the occurrences of things like torture. Yeah, yeah but the so, feeling of national danger was huge for most of the Cold War, and we still didn't torture people. You know, like, the feeling of national safety was relatively brief. I mean, we remember it because it was our adolescence, but, I mean, I still am old enough to remember what it was like to be afraid that they were going to drop the bomb at any minute, and we still wouldn't have tortured people then, or at least we wouldn't have talked about it, right? We wouldn't have been okay with it. People wouldn't have defended it in the news, right? So I don't think it's fair to say that it's a causal relationship between people feeling less safe and people being more willing to torture. I think there's a much more complex ideological thing that's happening. Um, but let's get back to the movie. And I think yeah, that... Actually, the- and actually, Mark, Mark, you said something interesting that I think it's worth... It pivots to it. What to me is an interesting point in the movie where they're... The one point where they talk about the Iraq war is where they're giving their probability assessments to... He's not named in the movie, but it's obviously Leon Panetta. Um, who's going to pass on the recommendation to the White House, and the various CIA analysts are giving their probability assessments to Panetta, and they're doing it in terms of basically either more, like comparing it to the recommendations of WMD when Iraq, Iraq, which is, of course, were wrong. Um, 
and that's an interesting character moment because all the other all the other analysts are saying it's like oh it's like a 50% chance that Laden is in this house there's a 60% chance they're kind of waffling and then the main character Maya kind of cuts them all down and just says it's 100% I'm sure it's like I know certainty freaks all you people out but it's 100% which is she's kind of a cipher throughout the movie and I would argue that's probably one of the bigger character moments in the movie for her is this this around this conference table yeah uh, just to to sort of frame what is the story of this movie a little bit it's a, it's primarily a suspense movie Right, it's a movie where, and it's funny because it's a suspense movie about something that we all know is going to happen, and we know when and how it's going to happen. But it's about setting up the uh, the sort of aura and environment and and the kind of subjective character experience of this this Maya person uh, as we we sort of build the tension around when or how this thing is going to come to pass, right, and how this sort of information is going to be revealed. I don't think that the movie the movie does seem to strive to be neutral to an extent. Right, it, it strives not to sort of say that the events are happening or sort of good or bad. There's an inexorability to them, um, and, and to the extent that Maya doesn't really have any interesting relationships with any other characters or have any really good dialogue in the entire movie. I mean, I don't know. I didn't like this movie as much as most people did, but she doesn't really interact with other people. Like she interacts a little bit with her kind of trainer at the beginning of the movie, but then he's gone, and then it's mostly about her alone, kind of struggling with the fact that the things that she keeps trying don't work. Um, and, and then it's like her having sort of conversations with bit characters where she complains a lot about how things aren't working out that way. But it's really about kind of like her kind of anxiety or slash like determination slash kind of like or angst, right, or angst around like when or how this thing is going to happen, right? And, and so, you know, that seems to me to be about the sort of core story of the movie. And, and there isn't even a sort of America as a character in this movie, really. Um, in a sense of like, is America going to get it done, right? Because there's so many faces that are inside the American government at various levels that are, you know, friends or enemies or, and they change a lot and different characters move in and out. So there isn't really a question of like, is what we're doing? There's not really a we, right? Like she's totally alone for most of the movie. She's yeah. the only one who cares about this stuff. <laughs> so Pete, what you're saying is that in this movie, unlike an independent state, there's no uh, cut to the crowd shot after the president's speech where you see people of every race, color, and creed and a drunk Randy Quaid saluting the president. <laughs> no, no. The last ah. shot in the movie is she literally gets into an airplane by herself. And the, the guy says to her, like, the guy who's flying the plane is like, wow, you must be pretty important. You have the whole plane to yourself. Where do you want to go? And she has no answer. And that's the end of the movie, right? I mean, that's, there are spoilers for Zero Dark Thirty in this podcast, but you know what's going to happen. It's Ensemble Milan dies. Um, but, uh, but, like, the end of the movie is like, well, what do we do now? You know, like, I'm totally by myself. Um, and then that, that shapes a lot of what happens. Um, I mean, I sort of, I would, I would compare it in the same way that I would compare The Hurt Locker to a, a buddy cop movie. I would compare, like, uh, Zero Dark Thirty to kind of like a rogue cop movie, except the cop never really goes rogue. And is kind of fundamentally frustrated by their inability to go rogue. You know, it, it would sort of be like if, uh, if, if instead of like, you know, stealing, commandeering a vehicle and chasing down the prime minister himself or whatever, Jack Bauer just got really pissy and filled out a lot of forms. Right? <laughs> and got really passive aggressive with his boss and started writing things on his whiteboard. Right? Like, and like, uh, just got really indignant. And like, really, there was like real lots of tight shots showing you how right he is. Right? And how beautiful he is for being right or something. You know, like, it, they wouldn't do that. But uh, I don't know. Like, like, it, it, I, I, I characterize it more as procedural, personally. I, I yeah, think it's yeah. very much, maybe not law and order, as we know, because those don't know, always end in a conviction, but something like CSI, where mm-hmm. you know they're going to get the guy. And sure, there's a little bit of a mystery, but generally speaking, you can tell 
pretty early on the episode who's again end up being. So it's really about, or maybe even like a, there's probably some other procedurals where you generally know who, who does it at the beginning. And so the question is only, how are they going to get this guy? How are we going to get from point A to point Z? And we're just going to watch all the points in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Because this movie is very much about how do they start with this one name? Because that's really what it's all about, is they have this one name of somebody who might be connected to Bin Laden. And that's the thread that she follows the rest of the movie down you know, some, some catch some red herrings and done some wrong alleys. But that's the idea is that it's figuring out how it all unspools. And basically, it's how did it get from a name to a guy in a room shooting the button in the face? Yeah. You know, all of the procedures, both intelligence and military side of, um, and that I can, uh, the movie very clearly kind of into three acts. You have this first bit, which is the torture bit uh, about kind of interrogating these de- detainees. The second act is the procedural element, the longest portion of the movie. We're getting to the raid. And then the last, what, 40 minutes of the movie is the raid mm-hmm. on the compound. Right. For which she's absent. Like she, the main character kind of vanishes. I mean, she they show her sitting in in the control room or whatever, kind of a, sort of being tuned into what's happening. But it is an interesting choice from a storytelling perspective that the main character is absent for the entire like half hour long climax of the movie. Um, and it's weird because they introduce all of the sort of SEAL Team Six guys. That's who that is, right? Is like SEAL Team. They don't yeah. really refer to him by name or by that name in the movie. Um, but the SEAL Team Six guys, I found eminently more watchable and interesting characters than uh, any of the people, other people who were in the movie up until that point, right? except for the guy who had the monkeys. He was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. the, the, he was a cool guy. <laughs> the, the sort of oh, wow. mentor torturer was. I mean, part of what makes is the problem with the endorsement of torture is that like one of the most sympathetic and coolest characters in the movie is the torture expert, right? Like, and he's like, yeah, he's have monkeys and he feeds them ice cream and then he tortures people right it's like uh anyway <laughs> yeah, you have a question the monkeys because the aspca would never have signed off on that no they yeah. murder the monkeys they kill the monkeys oh do they yeah the, the pakistanis kill the monkeys when he's not around i believe is what happens or something like that yeah. and it's really sad um <laughs> yeah it's like it's it's dark man it's zero dark 30 for a reason <laughs> <laughs> I think I enjoyed it more than Pete did, but I will agree that the the SEAL Team Six guys have a lot less screen time, but they're a lot better characterized. You you don't you don't even get their names, but you still get much more feel of them as characters. Mm-hmm. And I would much rather watch a movie of their experiences between nine eleven and the Bin Laden raid, because like they they reference it. Like there's a great scene where in a helicopter, we're in the helicopter heading to the raid, and the, the team leader asks. Because they're in the new, they're in the new stealth helicopters that are still kind of in testing and you know may or may not be as stable as normal helicopters. Asks, hey, who here's been in a helicopter crash before? And everybody raises their hand because they've been fighting in Afghanistan for the last ten years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love the. There's one of the SEAL Team Six guys who listens to Tony Robbins on his iPod, and he has like a brief speech about like how he's going to do things after this is all over, and he's like wants them all to get in on it. Like, there's an implication that he's going to start a business, right? And that they're all going to be like part of the business that he starts. And then you half expect him to get shot like in five seconds after he says that. But, uh, <laughs> but it's it's, uh, it's Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty great. And I think the big thing, though, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you could say, well, these guys are soldiers and they're the ones who shoot people. And, like, you know, there's a certain prejudice on your behalf that determines why these characters are more watchable. I mean, the big thing is they relate to each other. There's more than one of them, you know. And and I I don't know. I think that that there's a lot of different – perspectives that you could have especially in terms of filmmaking it's a little bit more clear-cut when it gets to theater but in filmmaking 
when you it's like well what does it mean to have one character all by themselves in a film right and it's and it's, how what quality of storytelling can you do with one person totally alone you know in a short story it's totally doable in a novel eh, it gets kind of hard right like how could you have one person entirely solitary without like some sort of contrivance that makes other people appear as fantasies or whatever um in a play I mean, I don't like the character study plays where it's like one person giving monologues the whole time and there's no interaction with anybody else. I don't feel like you get to any of the good stuff. And in a movie, I mean, there are some movies where it's just like one person wandering alone in the wilderness, but there's a reason why those movies don't tend to be very popular, right? Like they tend to be artsy. Well, it's, Tom, it's Tom Hanks and Castaway things. even had a, a Wilson, right? The volleyball to keep him company. <laughs> yeah, totally. Is this Castaway Spielberg? Is that a Spielberg movie? No, it's Zemeckis, uh, I, I think. Oh, it's a Zemeckis movie. Okay, fair d- enough. D- would this movie be better if Maya had a Wilson? If she had some imaginary friend she could talk to during the movie? <laughs> I, honestly, I think I think it did. I think it would be. I think. There, if, if I mean, the, in the in the this kind of like I, an interesting text, I think for comparison that I have seen is Homeland, right? Where the Claire Danes character as a. Uh, what CIA field agent right like develops this very this very sort of almost intimate relationship with the person that she's she's tracking and not just because she stoops him I mean uh, you know in advance of the stooping right like because she's she's really like uh, trying to think as he would think or, you know, trying to like, like get in his head. And there's this, this kind of like connection or this sort of sixth sense that's, that's developed. Is there any sense that there is like, uh, that, is there any sense that this, this woman who's the, the protagonist of the movie, the, the intelligence analyst is, and it's, um, Who's the actress? It's it's Jessica, Jessica Chastain. Chastain, right? Yeah, yep. that Jessica Chastain like has some sort of relationship with Bin Laden, uh, kind of mentally, like notionally, that allows her to uh, do the detective work that she does. Not really. I mean, she's not chasing Bin Laden for most of only. She's only chasing Bin Laden indirectly for most of the movie. She's mm-hmm. chasing Bin Laden's courier, who is a very minor, uh, pl- like a part in the movie. He shows up a couple of times. He has no lines. Um, his job in the movie is to show that if you use your cell phone while you're driving, Navy SEALs will come to your house and kill you. I see. Because the, his one shot in the movie is he's they, they, this is how they catch him. He's using his cell phone and they like triangulate it and he's driving by and then they follow him, basically follow him back to the compound at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he dies later in the movie. If you want to see Jessica Chastain do this, you should watch The Debt which is very oh, much yeah. that movie. Yeah, that, that's oh. where she and the Nazi guy have those really intense scenes, right? And she's the Israeli commando or agent who's going to try to get the Nazi doctor, right, after, after the Second World War. And that, that movie is much more... I mean, that movie, I felt like, was much more of a better showcase of essentially the same character uh, because the character got to interact with more people in more situations. Um, although she does interact with a lot of people. I think a part of it is the movie is so broad in scope and covers so many years that a lot of people come in and out like major characters vanish or die and are gone right um i mean there's like a relationship that she looks like she's going to have at one point with a fellow agent and then that doesn't work out and then she's not around for the rest of the movie um well, I, yeah, I wanted, yeah actually that, that fellow agent i wanted to talk briefly about that because mm-hmm. that's actually i think has received some criticism because the fellow agent like spoilers alert again for <laughs> Uh, she dies. She gets yeah. she, in the attack in 2010, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bombing in a compound in Afghanistan that killed a bunch of CIA agents, and that, that's portrayed in the movie. Um, but in the movie, I would argue she's portrayed kind of amateurish. Yeah, she's like super 
super giddy about this agent coming and makes a pretty rookie mistake as far as how they how they allow this bomber to get past security and it's been criticized because that's not really what happened in real life in real life they this agent had been trusted and had met a bunch of times before and there's so it's kind of, and it's unfortunate because it's a real person it's a, a there's a real life person that's being portrayed as kind of an idiot and unfortunately she's gone now so it's that that's being criticized as kind of a dishonor to her memory and of course she's not around to defend herself yeah the cia has defended on her behalf like issued a statement saying that the way that that it's not portrayed is both incorrect and disrespectful she's portrayed as catty right she like the other woman shows up and she's like has a rivalry with her and doesn't like when she's successful and so she tries to sort of move too fast to try to make up ground and and get the big score and and it turns out that she gets everybody killed like right and it's like And it's just, it's, I mean, it, the, the movie has a really complex relationship with the truth uh, in the sense that, like, it goes to a lot of trouble to reconstruct certain events as accurately as possible. The raid on the Bin Laden compound is a very detailed and, and like, even down to the minute, I think, uh, by accounts, you know, attempts to be an accurate portrayal of what happened, um, you know, given, of course, the prejudices associated with filming it from given people's perspectives. It's not filmed from the perspective of the children who were in the compound. It's filmed from the perspective of the SEAL team as they go in. Um, and like, yeah, and like a lot and like the specific bombings that happens are, are real life events that actually happened. Um, but the whole story of Maya and her coworkers, which is the, you know, the not like the main story of the movie, that's a historical fictive construction, right? Like these people were real people, but their interactions, they sort of take sort of stock events that sort of happened around these sorts of things and arranges them into a story, right? So you can't say that they never tortured people, but they didn't torture that person in that way, right? And you can't say that there weren't CIA agents who made mistakes, but that CIA agent didn't make that mistake at that time, right? And it's sort of like, well, how does it get problematic when you approach representing the truth to a greater degree do you, are you, do you then have a greater responsibility to shore up the other inaccuracies i mean the movie i really want to compare it to is argo which is a very very similar problematic relationship with the truth but leans in the other direction right where sort of more absurd things happen um and it's more movieish and, and it, I, I feel like the the sort of the things that real people do in that movie that don't correspond to what they really did I'm not going to come out of Argo thinking that those things really happened, necessarily. I mean, I'm not, because I'm very skeptical. But if I didn't know that in Zero Dark Thirty that this particular CIA agent didn't get all those people killed, like, I might not know coming out of the movie. You know, like so, I, so are you positing kind of a uncanny valley of truthness that the closer you get to the truth in fiction, there, there's a point at which you're so close that you really shouldn't be down there. You, you, 50% or 75% percent truth is fine but 95 is really really dangerous because that last five percent is going to throw people off because they're going to assume it's correct yeah i think that that's a pretty good way of putting it i mean there's a moment in this movie because because like jessica chastain isn't quite so noticeable an actress now that she takes you out of the sense of it being a documentary since it's kind of filmed like a documentary sort of like how jeremy renner wasn't a noticeable enough actor when the hurt locker was made to have the same effect but there is definitely a scene where tony soprano and captain john harkness or captain jack harkness <laughs> Torchwood and Doctor Who, like, get into an elevator. <laughs> it's just like, all right. <laughs> like, I laughed out loud when they showed Captain Jack Harkness. He's like, it's like two lines in the movie. Right? But it's like, oh, it's this guy that is this bisexual immortal space traveler, and he's in this movie. <laughs> um, and, like, 
there's a couple of other people who just jump out as like that person's a, an actor. Like Stannis Baratheon is in it, and uh, the Francis guy from Mad Men is in it for like one scene. But most of the actors are not recognizable. So kind of like it's like, oh, that's right, we're watching a Hollywood movie, and we should be remembered that that this is not real. Um, but the movie kind of pretends toward reality at so many other points, right? That it's kind of hard to hard to bridge that it's yeah you're you're totally right about the 95 percent. i feel that way at least i'm not saying that you're 100 percent always definitively right just because i feel that way but that's how i feel about it that's how i feel about it too that the five percent is really problematic because that's where propaganda lives right is like is like you convince people that what you're saying is true and then you fill in the gaps and you say it's license right and like that's that's kind of a sketchy place to be um but yeah, zero dark thirty, man. Whereas, whereas Argo is more on the on the Affleck side of the divide. Right? Like, <laughs> I'm the only thing between you and a gun to your head. Like there aren't really lines like that in this movie, where it's like uh, tense, you know, act, like tense staring contest between the dad from Malcolm in the Middle and the people around him in his office. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out. Um, that uh, just recently and around this award season time, uh, we've been talking a lot about these movies that have these interesting relationships with history and uh, you know, and, and you know, historical facts or historical eras, right? Uh, I mean, just looking at the list of, uh, of Best Picture nominees for this year, uh, we've talked about Argo. Last week we talked about, or you guys talked about Django Unchained. Um, I, I guess Les Mis, too, if you want to talk about historical fiction. Uh, Lincoln... Now, and Zero Dark Thirty, right? And if you look at last year's Academy Awards, uh, I mean, like, for that weight of history, uh, similar weight in history coming along, I think like War Horse might be the only one that's at, <laughs> at a similar level. I mean, so I'm not quite sure what happened, like what water, you know, what was in the water in Hollywood these days that has uh, you know, caused so much of this historical fiction to, uh, to percolate. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's a definite trend this year compared to last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could say it's the election. The election makes people feel political. Um, of course, that, that's also kind of the dog that didn't bark in this movie. If you remember, when, it, when this movie was announced, it was originally going to be released like the week before Election Day. And there was a big outcry that this was going to be some love letter to Obama mm-hmm. about him killing bin Laden. And <laughs> Obama, it's not that. <laughs> it does not appear. If anything, it portrays him negatively as being dithering on the decision to make the attack but he, he doesn't appear in the movie at all he's i think only re- referenced not even by name it's just potus no he's in one scene there, there there's one scene where they watch a video of him oh that's he, right and then what he's doing is he's denouncing torture right and he's, he's saying that you know america does not torture we need to make sure we don't do this in order to regain america's moral standing and they and the characters who are watching it they don't like sigh like they come just short of being like Oh, right. Like, oh man, this guy. But they, they don't do that. Like, they're sort of they're watching, and you can tell that they know that things are changing. And it's referenced a couple times. Like, we don't have the detainee program anymore. You know, like the political focus on Gitmo and on Abu Ghraib has ruined our ability to to interrogate these detainees. You know, and that's a problem. Um, but I mean, they, yeah, they don't come up to the point of saying like Obama hindered them. Um, but they definitely don't say he helped them or that he had anything to do with it. Right, it's sort of like he's sort of part of the bureaucracy. Um, if anything, the movie shows really how ineffective they were at getting Bin Laden, right? Like because it takes such a freaking long time to to track him down, and there's so many unnecessary delays, right? It's it's a movie largely about bureaucracy um, and the ways that that bureaucracy it 
slows down, and not just bureaucracy, but any sort of large institutional framework uh, in any large operation, institutional operation, is going to move slowly. Um, just the years that go by in this movie. The years that go by with Jessica Chastain not aging a day, of course. Um, <laughs> so, like, she ages, like, ten years over the course of the movie and looks exactly the same as the end of the beginning. I think she maybe wears her hair slightly differently. Good but that's genes. true of it. Yeah, that's true. She has good bone structure. <laughs> so would you say that this is the wire of, uh, you know, of getting Osama bin Laden movies? The, what do you mean? In well, the no, if this is the wire of getting Osama bin, bin Laden movies, uh, not, not only would they not get Osama bin Laden, but like in some ways they would like their actions would make the problem worse, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if this were the wire of Osama bin Laden movies, she would meet the the Abu the Abu guy that she's chasing the whole time, uh, the Ahmed, whatever his name is. I, I don't mean to be offensive in saying it; I literally just can't remember his name. And she would be like, "Oh, I had such hopes for us." Right, like, and then he would get killed, and then she would feel bad, right? But instead, there's not that level of complexity in the relationship between the cop and the robber. Um, it's like he got shot good. It would be if like uh, if like um, uh, Avon or what's his name? Um, gosh, do I really not remember his name? The Avon, uh, the Bar- Barksdale brother who gets gets uh, is in the very prominently featured in the first season of The Wire. Um, Avon Barksdale or or what's his name? D'Angelo Barksdale? D'Angelo Barksdale. It would be as if D'Angelo Barksdale just got shot in the face in like the 10th episode of The Wire and everyone was like, good. He deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, that's not what The Wire is about. <laughs> just stop talking about The Wire because we're going to spoil it. We're alienating <laughs> yeah, everybody. Let's not, let's not make that happen. But I yeah. wanted to go back to something about the 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 meta story around this movie, which um, we, we alluded to earlier about how the release date was changed because people thought it was going to be a love letter to Obama. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember hearing that this movie was greenlit well before Osama bin Laden was actually killed. And like the original story behind this was going to be obviously very different. And that was going to be these bureaucrats toiling away and not finding Osama bin Laden. Right. That That's my understanding. Yeah. That they were, they had been doing all this background research on, the search for Obama and it was going to be a, for oh, Osama <laughs> and it was going to be uh, you're here first folks <laughs> one call up the Drudge Report anyway continue. Uh, and so I guess that's that's how they were able to turn it around so quickly is they already had a lot of at least the background research and then just needed to fill in the details from the raid and, and, all, and all that stuff that's really fascinating I, 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 I just I really want to know what kind of movie they were planning uh, you know, in the in the outcome that Bin Laden doesn't die, like they haven't they haven't found Bin Laden by that time. It was going to be a trilogy of three two and a half hour movies. <laughs> <laughs> the middle part was going to involve an Iranian fellow known as the Necromancer, who is going to go <laughs> the story of Leon Panetta traveling to like the EU to try to talk with the Lady Galadriel about going after Ahmadinejad. Um, <laughs> oh no, there and back again, folks. There and back again. <laughs> Desolation of foreign affairs. Um. Yeah. No, that's a good question. I mean, probably you could totally make a movie where they don't get him, and it's and honestly, the victory, the the, the killing of Osama bin Laden. Like, there's a point in the movie where it could have taken a very different turn, where uh, Maya's boss is, says to her, "I don't care about Osama bin Laden anymore." 
you know, there a guy is it right after the bombing of Times Square. You remember that the guy who tried to bomb Times oh, yeah, Square yeah, and caught him and they stopped it. Yep. Or at least he didn't hurt anybody. Um, it's right after that happens, and she corners her boss, like a director, a local director, regional director of the CIA, in the hallway, and and uh, he tells her like, I don't care about Osama bin Laden anymore. I need to know when the next attack is. You know, there are people trying to bomb Times Square. We need to protect the homeland. Like protect the homeland. That's your job. And she just goes off on him, right? And, threatens him professionally with she's going to slander him back in washington and it's going to ruin his career and and you know she's just tearing into him until he accedes and gives her the resources that she needs to continue her uh her ahabian chase against bin laden um there is a movie that you could make from that point where the killing of bin laden is not necessarily a good thing um right like where where it could be this like obsession that she has that takes her in this very negative direction as a person but that's not the movie that they make because then she just leaves you know for half an hour but anyway even though i i think there is something to that like i didn't come out of the movie thinking that she had particularly pure motives going after bin laden like her argument to that cia agent is not a very good argument and her bit about 100 i'm 100 certain is not a good thing. I don't want my intelligence analysts in real life saying they're 100% certain about things that they only have like bare evidence on. Yeah. So yeah. I yeah. don't know that the I don't know that it was intentional or at least I think it's maybe at least supposed to be ambiguous, but her search is not portrayed necessarily positively. And I, I think that's most that's best shown at the end of the movie where the seals have gotten back to their base. And they get out of the helicopter and they bring bin Laden's body into this tent. And then they pull out all these sacks of intelligence that they have. And all of the SEALs, everybody else in the tent is paying attention to cataloging and starting the next thing. And she's just staring at this body bag because she has literally nothing else in her life. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that was an interesting compare, uh, contrast between these the two groups for the SEALs. Uh, they have more missions. They're going to be doing more stuff. But for her, it's this has been there's a bit where she's asked by Leon Panetta, what have you done at the CIA? And she says nothing else. I've been here for 10 years and I've done nothing but bin Laden. Mm-hmm. And even then, like she has the she says at one point that she believes she has a lot of survivor guilt from the colleague of hers that's killed in that, you know, fabricated accident or like that sort of miss that spun accident. Right. Like uh, that's in right. the movie. Uh, and, and she talks about. At one point, how she believes that she's been spared so that she can finish her job of, t- of killing Bin Laden, and, and she talks to someone one point about how she talks to the French guy, right, the, the whatever he is, the 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 guy who who's part of her field team in Pakistan, mm-hmm. and she and she says, you know, my friends have been killed, right, in pursuit of this. Now, if you've seen the first half of the movie, that woman was not her friend, right? They were not friendly. She was. <laughs> they were rivals. They're friendly by the end there. I mean, they guess they went out for they had a glass of wine together once, but every other scene they have in the movie is about them hating each other. I guess they do. I am right. Like she's I aming with yeah. her, like with the telltale I am sounds, no less. Um, uh, right before she dies, but it's like with, with this the AOL I, with the AOL I am sounds. It's, it wasn't the AOL I am interface, but it sounded like the AOL I am sounds. That's interesting. I mean, it, that's that's interesting. There's a whole there's a whole probably film studies article in that. But sorry, I don't no. mean to interrupt. Well, and, yeah, and they're using and they're using text speak. Like the, them texting back, it's like you know abbreviations. You know, you the letter U for you and WhatsApp for WhatsApp, things yeah. like that. <laughs> Guys, that's that's CIA secret code right there. <laughs> and like it's she has, the, you're able to decipher that. 
She has the picture of herself and her former professional rival as like the wallpaper of her desktop computer. <laughs> so she kind of like manufactures this. She she sort of overcompensates and creates this idea in her own mind of this close relationship with this coworker, which I don't think the movie necessarily supports entirely. I mean, maybe they just maybe it's just an oversight. Maybe they meant for that journey to feel more complete, at least from my perspective. By the time it was over, but to me, it's like she has nothing in her life and she imagines this revenge fantasy about her friends dying as a way of justifying the thing that she was going to be doing anyway right which is um yeah and and she treats the hunt very personally there's a number of times where she says you're going to kill bin laden for me she tells that to the navy seals when she first meets him like you're going to go out and kill bin laden for me yeah not like you're going to go out and do this mission for your country but no i want to kill bin laden but unfortunately like i'm not a navy seal and they won't let me go so you're going to do it instead yeah, there's a really interesting interrogation scene where she's the one who's doing the the uh, um, stuff that's illegal and you can't do in real life, um, which is just like punch, getting a dude punched in the face a bunch of times with no clearance. Um, and, and it's like, and she's standing behind the, the puncher, right? There's like the guy chained to the desk, and then there's a guy who's sitting in front of the guy chained to the desk whose only job is to punch the guy in the face. And, uh, and she sort of like taps him on the shoulder whenever she wants him to punch him in the face, um, which is a really interesting, I mean, you could write a whole women's studies paper about that, about like her, the sort of like her relationship with kind of male flesh in this movie and kind of like recruiting and, and manipulating male flesh, almost like a puppeteer to the pursuit of her personal vendetta or whatever it is that she's out for in this case um it's very it's very interesting <laughs> and uh, receiving a black sack of male flesh uh, as, as her final reward yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah totally i mean um, i don't that's an accident I mean, maybe it's an accident but it's not it's there's interpretive weight that can be drawn from it so I, i'm really curious to know um what was the depiction like at the uh towards the end of the movie presumably of the moment where the navy seals actually find and kill osama bin laden like do we get a good look at bin laden like does he have much screen time um does he uh does he have an awesome outgoing one-liner <laughs> you know but like <laughs> damn you yankees damn you all to hell <laughs> and he goes out in a blaze of gunfire not so much no that was a great no a lot yeah, and, in the and, tone of that no and, and there's no bond one-liner when they shoot him either that they, they don't you know I, I can't remember the uh, what's, what's the Mr. Freeze came, line. Yeah, I thought Christmas only came once a year. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> uh, like, it's it's a one time. <laughs> no, it's presented very subdued. It's dark. You, the, you, they shoot at a body, and you can't even tell that it's been Laden yet. They're pretty sure it's him because just because like where they are in the house, they're on the third level, and they knew he was up there. But it's not triumphant at all. It's just kind of happens, and There's then no they music cue. No, and the, it's only like it's, it was really well. I was looking. It, it kind of like gradually dawns on both the seals and you that yeah, that's Bin Laden. And I don't think they really. I mean, they when he's in the body bag at the end, and um, Maya looks at him. I guess there's you, you get a little bit of look at his face, um, but it's presented very subdued and non-triumphal. There is a really interesting thing that they do, and I'm not sure whether this is what they're actually doing, but this was what I gleaned from it, and here we get into that problem with the 5% of what's true and what's not true in this movie, um, is that there, well, at one point, one of the Navy SEALs who's just shot Bin Laden in the face, and it's, it's kind of creepy because they call him by name. They're like, Osama, Osama, and they're, like, they're sitting in the staircase, and they're calling him by name, and they're just waiting for someone to jump out, and as soon as they see a, a person walk towards them, they shoot him. 
right? And that's how they get him. But the guy is standing over him. And he takes pictures of him with a camera. And the camera has a – you can't see the body on the ground. It's, it's dark and it's out of focus. But the camera has a very bright, like, digital display screen. And I believe that what's shown on the digital display screen are actual pictures of the dead Osama bin Laden, I think. Um, at least they look like they look like it. Like, the sort of implication that I gathered from it was, like, these are pictures of what Osama bin Laden looked like when he'd been shot in the face. Or they're at least, like, convincing um, – they're convincing counterfeits or, you know, to that sort of thing. So it's like you're supposed to – your look at Osama is not at the body. You look at the camera that's looking at the body, huh. which is funny because you're looking through a camera at a camera that's looking at a body, right? Like, they, and like one of the women in the room tries to lie to the Navy SEALs and tell them that it is an Osama bin Laden. So one of the Navy SEALs goes to, like, a child and kind of like ingratiates the child with a glow stick and tries to get the child to identify Osama bin Laden. And you actually never see whether the child identifies Osama bin Laden or not, but it's kind of assumed that the child does. Um, so yeah, and though there's no one-liner, he never says anything, his face is never shown on screen, except in pictures. Um, his big nose is shown a couple of times. Like his beard and his big nose are shown shot sort of from his feet, like as he's lying down. Um, and so that's kind of noticeable. Um, but yeah, and he's skinny and tall, I guess. He's the right height. His beard is gray. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, there's, there's nothing. Like, they shoot him, and then one of the characters turns to him and like, you, know, you realize what you just did, right? Um, or something that, to that effect. That, that part was interesting to me, because that, that, that comes a little... It's when the, the rest of the SEALs are, like, gathering up the intelligence. They're, they're ransacking this room for all the hard drives and such. And the Navy SEAL who shot him kind of comes in with, like, days in his eyes... And is like realizing that he just shot Bin Laden in the face, and it's, it's kind of washing over him. And I, I found it interesting because this is pretty realistic. It's kind of true to life that after something, obviously nothing this substantial, but like after a big, important something very stressful, his unit commander tells him, "Grab a sack." Like mm-hmm. just because you killed Bin Laden doesn't mean that you're not still in this unit and still have a job to do. So you still need to do what the rest of us are doing. And it's not like he's not chastising him, but he's refocusing him. Yeah, basically moving on to the next thing that this is not nothing has changed that much just because we, we we shot this guy mm-hmm. yeah yeah is that and then, yeah, so it's, it's, is that the the message of the film more largely I mean I know for this particular Navy SEAL nothing is, has changed that much because there's another mission after this or you I mean or this mission even isn't uh, done because you have to get everyone extracted or something but like uh what, what, where does the film come down on the the larger political question of like, is it are are we safe now? Is it okay? I, you know, did we win? Right? Like, is there is there any sense of that throughout this movie? I mean, we're not in the movie. Like, you and I aren't in the movie. Oh, I thought yeah. I thought it was ninety five percent true. So that you know, at least <laughs> like at least three of the four of us would be in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's only referenced in passing once or twice whether Osama bin Laden's life or death has anything to do with whether people are 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 actually at risk, right? Like, um, you know what I mean? Like, they say it. They they say like he's masterminding things. He's connecting the dots. Um, but it's. I mean, Ben, what was your take on that? I felt like it's not clear what the effect is on everyday people. Right. If anything, this definitely comes down on the side of we killed bin Laden because he. Because he did 9-11, not because he, we were afraid he was going to do another. Yeah. Which is, which is interesting. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but um, there's ju- uh, Justice Stevens, who, who retired off the Supreme Court recently. Uh, interesting. I didn't know this, but he was a Navy codebreaker and was involved in 
breaking the code that assassinated Yamamoto. Oh, wow. And, and after bin Laden was killed, he was discussing it and basically said he, was, he didn't have any problem at all with the fact that we killed bin Laden, the fact that we sent SEALs, and pretty clearly from the movie at least, and definitely from what I've read factually, there wasn't really any real attempt to take him alive. Maybe if he had walked out with his hands up and said, I surrender. But short of that... They were, going, they were there to kill him and get his body and bring it back. Mm-hmm. And Stevens distinguished from that it's, that's only acceptable if we're looking at it from the standpoint of he still poses a threat. That the reason it was okay to kill Yamamoto in World War II wasn't because he planned Pearl Harbor, but because he was still in command of the Japanese forces, and by killing him, we would shorten the war. Right. And from, from I would argue a legal moral perspective that's probably the only justification for killing bin laden is that he's still an active terrorist and by killing him you compromise the network you can reduce al-qaeda's ability to attack us this movie though takes a revenge point of view that really the reason they're going after bin laden throughout most of this movie is because of, because of 9-11 because of all these other bombings because he killed maya's friend et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it starts with the sound of people dying in the World Trade Center, and it ends with silence. Right. Right. So that's kind of like, and the silence is the sort of the silence of the voices that aren't speaking anymore, that aren't demanding and it's not, vengeance. And it's not like it. Sh- well, it shows the bombings that happened throughout the two thousand, the, the the follow-on attacks. It doesn't show any real sign that Bin Laden is behind those. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of in the background, but it's not like it shows the like, oh, he's still doing this stuff. We need to get him. Yeah. And there's no discussion at all about terrorists operating at the time who weren't affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Right? right. Like, at one point, they talk about the shoe bomber, and they, and they very deliberately connect him to Al-Qaeda. They're like, you knew the shoe bomber, right? They ask the guy who's being tortured, and he's like, yeah, I knew him. But they never talk about, like, Muqtada al-Sadr, right? Like, they never talk about any of the stuff that's happening in Iraq. You know, they never talk about anything other than the things that, that directly – descend from like the, the 9-11 thing there's a big speech where someone says you know in in what is it in 1999 or 1998 they attacked us uh by by sea or and then in 19, uh, 2000 they was in 1998 they attacked us at land 2000 they attacked us at sea 2001 they attacked in the air you know and it, like and that's like the big rallying cry to, to go get them right um right and there's there's yeah. arguably an interesting narrative that you can talk about in iraq because one of the biggest strategic errors that Osama bin Laden made was sending a whole bunch of al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda fighters to Iraq. Right. Who caused a whole bunch of problems, but ultimately caused so many problems that they turned the people that were kind of in the middle away from them and towards the U.S. That the, like, the, whole sur- the whole narrative of the surge and all that is basically a bunch of the Iraqis deciding that they would rather that, they, they, that al-Qaeda is worse than the U.S., Mm-hmm. And it's largely because of some strategic errors Bin Laden made. And that'd be arguably an interesting thing to include in the movie, but they don't talk about it. Iraq is only mentioned in passing. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's very focused on the sort of the string that connects, um, you know, Zero Dark Thirty with, you know, Tuesday 9-11 stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it may be time for this podcast to end with silence. Monkey, give me back my ice cream. <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. It needs more comic relief. The movie isn't funny enough. Like, Argo at least had John Goodman. Like, this had nothing like that. But anyway. Yeah, it definitely could have used a little bit of, a little bit of levity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
those people, I'm sure those people never laughed in the whole 10 years that they were pursuing Osama bin Laden. I'm sure they never laughed once, right? Like, they, they was always serious all the time. Um, I don't know. I mean, well, you that's, may- that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about with the Navy SEALs is that one of the reasons they're probably more interesting characters is they're funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> and maybe this is the silence that ends the podcast with that with, <laughs> with Pete's with Pete's sigh. We might, uh, you know, I uh, the rest is silence, as Hamlet says. Um, so, if you would like to join uh, the conversation that follows the profound silence uh, that ends the podcast. Uh, you can uh, join the conversation in the comments on the show notes. You can email podcast at overthinkingit.com. You can call or text 203-285-6401. And uh, you can come and continue the conversation in person on January 26th uh, in New York City in the East Village at the, what is it called, the 11th Street Bar. Yes, the 11th Street Bar at, on a, a, believe it or not, 11th Street in the East Village between <laughs> Avenues A and B. Wouldn't it be funny if it were not actually like if it were on, you know, 12th Street and it yeah. was like one of those 95 percent true facts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very good strategy for running a business. Um <clears throat> You know, you want to be as accurate as possible. 11th Street Bar, January 26th, the Saturday night. Uh, and you can find details of that on the site and uh, on our Facebook page. What site is that, you ask? Why? It's www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably doesn't deserve. There's just not enough time to do outro gags. Just won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Movie, Musical, or Comedy, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Fight the real enemy.